The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 13th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I want you to know that among the services that I provide for you is that I listen to all the Sunday shows. Now, watch. I listen. I could do listening on double speed. I ingest twice the info in half the time. I'm not a complete martyr here, people. And I normally do this for a few purposes, to learn things for myself, to become a better citizen, see how the arguments are shaping up, to fact check. But I also mind them for serendipitous moments, like Tom Cotton on ABC's This Week. The director of the CBO is not Moses. He doesn't come down from the mountaintops with stone tablets. But wouldn't it be great if he did? I am the Lord thy God. I give unto you what's estimated to be these 8 to 12 commandments. Do not covet thy neighbor's wife or his ox. Even if you were to establish a 10-year benchmark on ox coveting, thou shalt not engage in discretionary ox coveting above this baseline, for I am the Lord thy God. So that is the sort of fodder that I'm going for, right? But this Sunday... I was struck not by one or two guests or statements or topics, but just the whole gestalt. How much crazy crap is going on? Now, I am planning one day to unveil the gist's crazy crapometer, but here's a sign of how crazy the crap was. Okay, here is Jake Tapper. This is uh, the lead of his Sunday show. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is hearing echoes of that old Trump catchphrase, You're fired. In a dramatic public standoff, the U.S. attorney known for prosecuting major corruption cases in New York City refused to resign at President Trump's request, forcing Trump to officially show him the door. Preet Bharara, dubbed the sheriff of Wall Street, was appointed by President Obama. Preet Bharara, that is a good thing to cover. But do you know that the other Sunday shows just did not cover it? The words Preet or Bharara were not mentioned by Meet the Press or Face the Nation. It wasn't bad judgment on their part. There's just too much to get to. Or when Sean Spicer defined his own reality over jobs figures, oh yeah, now they're real. That was pursued on Meet and State, but not Face or Week. Well, on Week, they played the clip, but didn't reference it again. My point isn't that any of these shows are falling down on the job. No, they're all filled with good content. There's just so much crazy crap going on. You can't even get into all of it. Some say it's Trump's strategy. I don't know. I just think he's inherently chaotic. I just know the effect is that will we ever get the oxygen to possibly discuss, say, the Baku deal that Adam Davidson was talking about, where Trump did business with corrupt Azerbaijani politicians working in league with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? Seems kind of important, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know what is important? The front runner for the Georgia congressional seat, once held by Tom Price, might go to a Jedi. Well, actually, he's the father of a Jedi, if you're very familiar with the Star Wars canon. We will explain this all in the spiel. But first, for some substantive talk on that other fairly monumental piece of legislation out of the White House, the travel ban, here's Ben Wittes of Lawfare. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. 
I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. When you're scattershot, as our president is, you're going to draw blood from a wide array of targets. Yet it is surprising, interesting, how often his targets, President Trump's targets, are somewhere in the intersection between law and national security. So who better to have on our show than Benjamin Wittes, who is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and he edits the Lawfare blog, and he's also a member of the Hoover Institution's Task Force on National Security and the Law. And I listen to him on the Lawfare podcast, which is excellent and indispensable in these times. Hello, Benjamin. How are you? Hey, thanks for the shout out to the Lawfare podcast. Yes. I mean, such a such a good time. A good time is had by all. Now, I could start anywhere, but let's talk about the new executive order about immigration from uh, six majority Muslim countries. You had this great phrase, which was uh, the headline of your take on the first executive order, malevolence tempered by incompetence. Great description. But now that there is less incompetence or the incompetence has been tamped down, how does it affect the malevolence of this executive order? I think the motivation behind the order is still pretty malevolent, right? I mean, the order is a direct lineal descendant of what Trump described all through the campaign as a Muslim ban. And uh, you can't consistent with all kinds of uh, rules, regulations, and laws uh, ban Muslims from entering the United States. And so when you once you're president and you try to do that, you end up uh, making it something kind of like a Muslim ban. And then when you do that in a completely incompetent fashion and lots and lots of courts step in to intervene, then you fall back to something that may be more defensible. Uh, but if you believe, as I do, that the underlying project is offensive and objectionable to its core, you are still left with a uh, pretty malevolent core. Yes. I would say not just objectionable or malevolent, but, you know, against long term against U.S. interests. The number one bulwark against terrorism I think the United States has is the fact that Muslims are so well integrated into American society. And this gets in the way of that. You know, that's what's protected us. Uh, more than anything else. It's that uh, French Muslims feel separate and Turkish uh, extremists don't feel integrated into society. You know, most people in Turkey are Muslim, but different strains of of uh, ethnicity are fighting with each other. Just not the case in America. And if you go picking fights with an idea of Muslims, this is not good for the long-term security interests of this country. So I actually entirely agree with that, but it's an argument on which I don't want to rely. That's true. Because... Because, look, if you were wrong and uh, this were, in fact, uh, potentially effective and potentially a good way of preventing attacks, I would still think it was morally and ethically wrong. And I am, you know, I, I do think they're, you know, targeting innocent civilians. And that's what this is, right? It's, it's not saying 
Uh, you know, we're going to take the most aggressive actions we've taken in the past, right? Uh, highly coercive interrogations that a lot of people regard as torture. Uh, that was directed against a small number of people whom we believed, the CIA believed, in perfectly good faith were senior operatives of major terrorist organizations, right? They weren't directed at the average innocent person from a particular country. This is a set of policies that targets for – granted, the treatment isn't as harsh, but it's, it's pretty bad – non-admission to the United States almost under almost any circumstances, though there are exceptions here. The vast majority of people affected by this, they're conceitedly innocent of anything and we have no whiff of suspicion about them. And so, you know, my I agree with you that it's not likely to be effective counterterrorism, but I, I don't reach the question of how effective it is as policy. I just get hung up. And I also don't reach the legality of it, by the way, though I'm, you know, supposedly somebody who thinks about law. I I object to it on simply moral and ethical terms. Now, I know you thought the Ninth Circuit uh, opinion wasn't an exemplar of uh, judicial decision-making, um, even if you thought the executive order was even worse. What do you think the chances of this new order uh, holding up to scrutiny are? I certainly don't want to discourage anyone from bringing uh, appropriate legal challenges against it, but I think it is certainly much more bulletproof than the original version, which, you know, within 24 hours of it, I had written that it was a, you know, a giant birthday present to the ACLU. I mean, the, the bases for legal challenge to that were kind of dripping off the page and really dripping off the circumstances of the implementation. Here, you don't see any of that. I can see a few areas where I think good lawyers will get into court and raise some issues, but it will not happen on an emergency basis. It'll happen in much more like the regular order, and I'm much less confident that they're going to prevail. I think the one aspect that the layman could really understand was the courts did look at the motivation behind this order and all the times of Trump saying Muslim ban and Rudy Giuliani saying he asked us to take the Muslim ban and make it legal. Good job, Rudy, by the way. I haven't seen him doing too many interviews since then. Okay, that's a side note. But how unique was that in judicial reasoning to look at campaign promises and to use that as an explanation of motivation? And I guess I have three questions. One, how unique was that to look at campaign promises and then uh, compare them and try to discern the motivation of the law? Two, how important were those campaign promises to disqualifying the first executive order? And three, how vulnerable did those campaign promises make the current executive order? As a general working matter, you don't consult motive in evaluating a policy, right? The policies, you evaluate the four corners of a policy and the way it interacts with the requirements of other law. There are certain exceptions to that. One of them is when motivations for a policy are invidious and when you're actively trying to engage in discrimination it matters that you are actively trying to do that. And there are circumstances in which the same thing can be legal if you do it for an appropriate reason and illegal if you do it for an inappropriate reason. So I don't think there's anything too terribly strange when the president says, hey, I'm trying to ban Muslims over here uh, over and over and over again during the campaign 
and then says sort of similar things as president, including, you know, that he's, I mean, I forget the exact words, but he said this is protecting the country from terrorism and we all know what that means, right? I mean, he said a lot of things uh, that are highly evocative of the original invidious motivations that he announced. And uh, Giuliani certainly amplified that and provided a narrative text, right, for, for how the Muslim ban translated into this executive order. To what extent does that corrupt this? Um, you know, look, I think lots of people are going to attempt in court to make the lineal descendant argument and to stain it with the taint of what came before it. Now, I think it is probably eventually that taint has to ameliorate, assuming that the president doesn't say more things, which is, of course, a rash assumption because spewing whatever happens to be on his mind and hating Muslims is generally relatively close to the front of his mind is not something that his staff has ever figured out how to get him to stop doing. And I don't assume we're in an environment in which we are safe in the defense of this executive order from future presidential statements. But I do think assuming he doesn't say anything else, uh, we will start to see the erosion of the power of that taint over time. And I think it is a perishable commodity. So there's one last aspect of this I'd like to talk about. I'll ask your opinion of it. And it's, first of all, one of my pet peeves in policy is not to consider policies as a trade-off of costs and benefits, as a trade-off of pros and cons. So often we say, oh, if we support a policy, oh, there are no cons. This program will pay for itself. Anyway, it is you should be intellectually honest and consider the pros and the cons. With this, the only pro is this idea that we'll implement extreme vetting. And I don't see any evidence that there's such a thing that we could do that we're not doing. Am I wrong? So this is actually a a part of a much larger thing that I think we need to be conversation we have need to be having about the Trump administration and national security, which is, you know, that they are systematically engaged in what I call, I even have an acronym for it, which is ENCH, E-N-S-H, which stands for Errant National Security uh, Horseshit. <laughs> you know, I think if you think about the amount of ENCH that these guys are engaged in from the prior president, wiretapped me, this is an example of that, right? You know, the idea that keeping large numbers of people uh, out of the country from six or seven countries has some, you know, plausible upside is, I, I think there's simply no evidence for it. Certainly, I haven't been able to find any. But I think this is a, it's a much larger part, pattern of activity. In, in Latin, they call it ipsi dixit, right? Which is the idea that you argue something by announcing it. They've managed to remove hard questions from the table and replace them with dumb and easy questions. And, you know, I can't tell you what the real motivation for that is. I can tell you it makes it hard to have conversations about hard questions when when the table is sort of littered with the garbage of stupid and easy questions. 
So what do you think um, Republicans or even Democrats in Congress should do when presented with the idea, I've been wiretapped? Should they say, well, we'll do this investigation and actually do it? Or should they say, he's lying. We need to ignore this. First of all, I don't think you can ignore it because it is a presidential statement. The, I, th- I think as a, ma- as a definitional matter, the president's words have to have meaning. I think we should, as a civic matter of civic duty, insist that they have meaning. So I actually welcome the Intelligence Committee's investigation into any illegal wiretapping of Donald Trump by the prior administration, and uh, not to mention any legal and proper wiretapping of Donald Trump or his uh, Trump or Trump Tower by the previous administration. My only requirement in that, and I think this is the flip side of the civic of that civic obligation, is that if you take the president's words seriously and you find that they are errant national security horseshit, uh, it is your incumbent on you as the Senate Intelligence Com- Committee or the House Intelligence Committee to say that in no uncertain terms. What do you think the motivations of the well-regarded generals who are high up in this administration, McMaster and Mattis, are they there to shovel out the horseshit hoping there's a pony or are they Hercules with the Aegean stable? You'll never be able to shovel it all out. Like, let me say that I do not speak for either of them. I have spoken to neither of them about their motivations. This is speculation, but I'm more comfortable speculating about their motivations than I am about the president's because I think they are both people who occupy the same moral universe. And intellectual. You understand their way of thinking. I Look, I mean, I think there are very important values that if you are somebody who takes U.S. national security seriously, that you may feel a very deep obligation to protect over the next few years. So if I were General Mattis, for example, I would be thinking very hard about what a Secretary of Defense can do to prevent uh, damage to U.S. alliances overseas, for example, with countries that, you know, this country has a very long relationship of trust and, and obligation. And if I were General McMaster, I would have looked with horror at what happened in the first three weeks of the administration and said, you know, it is not a good thing for the United States to not have an interagency process when it makes fateful policy decisions. And I think there is a really important role for people of substance and conscience in going in and protecting uh, important core values like that. But you got to do it with the understanding that it might come at the expense of your reputation and you might get implicated in some pretty awful things as a result of it. You know, Machiavelli, I think it was Machiavelli, who, who, who said that the prince has to love his city more than he loves his own soul. I think that's the motivation behind some of these, what some of these people are doing. And I honor it, but I also honor it because it will involve taint. You know, I think that's a a matter of personal sacrifice. And, you know, I hope they come out less tainted. Uh, I fear that it will not be the case. Yes. It was either Machiavelli or Morris Day in the time. I sometimes get those. (laughs) 
Benjamin Wittes is a senior fellow at Brookings. He's the editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog. He has a podcast of the same name. And I think we are creating the position of chief of equine excrement examination for him now on this show. Hey, great to talk to you, Benjamin. Good talking with you. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel, we bring you the race for Georgia's 6th Congressional District, the fought over 6th. 18 candidates have filed to run in the race, two independents, 11 Republicans, five Democrats. The leading Republicans are Bob Gray, a businessman who looks like his name is Bob Gray, Karen Handel, former Georgia Secretary of State, once Marilyn Quayle's Deputy Chief of Staff, and Judson Hill, a state senator who proudly proclaimed that he has been endorsed by Marco Rubio. The tweet went on to explain why this might be important. Marco Rubio won the 6th. This means we can win in April. The vote is April 18th. I also got to meet some of Judson Hill's children in a promo video. There's this son. I would definitely say that my dad, to me, is the biggest role model in my life. Uh, I know a lot of people say that like they don't look at their parents, they'll look at someone else as a role model, but I really do look at him because of his Christian values. And then there's Judson Jr. Hi, I'm Judson Jr. and I'm excited that my dad is running for the U.S. Congress District. That's sort of how they say it. Something he's really taught me and what I really admire about him is always to chase after really my passion and pursue what it is that interests me. The visual here is Judson Jr. surrounded by wide-brim hats. He's wearing a hat, and now he's boxing a hat. A thorough public record search, okay, it was Google, reveals that Judson Hill Jr. works for a Venice Beach hat company. And one day, NFL MVP Cam Newton came into this hat company. ESPN did a whole report on Cam Newton visiting Judson Hill Jr.'s hat company. Here's Judson Hill Jr. talking about that visit. And we have a few hats that are ready to wear in the shop, but Cam's a big guy, obviously, and so he had a pretty big head, so we started trying on all the hats. Nothing was fitting them, so we actually just took them in the back and started making the hats right there in front of them. Of course, Cam Newton plays for the Carolina Panthers, which is a rival to the local Atlanta Falcons, so you could see why Judson Hill Sr. is downplaying Judson Hill Jr.'s vocational connection to the Panther. But really, why should the son's youthful, haberdasherial pursuits taint the father? They're different people. And shouldn't we all be excused our youthful indiscretions? Yes, unless you are a Democratic frontrunner for Georgia 6th, John Ossoff. Ossoff, who's 30, attended Georgetown's School of Foreign Service. He has a master's from the London School of Economics. He worked in Congress, and he's now the CEO of a small business which produces investigations targeting corrupt officials. But all of that fades when you know about the scathing footage put together in a negative ad taken out by congressional Republicans. It turns out 
that in college, John Ossoff once donned the garb of a known bootlegger and criminal. The House GOP leadership pack even has the footage. I'm Han Solo, captain of the Millennium Falcon. They also have video of Ossoff as a collegian, as Han Solo, who is widely thought to have shot Greedo first, playing rock, paper, scissors with some sort of swamp creature. Does not look good for Ossoff. Is it an innocent Halloween party or deep state carbonite freak show? Later, this ad, again, this is taken out by a Republican super PAC that is spending $1.1 million against Ossoff. They really lower the boom. They play tape of his college acapella group. And here's Ossoff and his college buddies making fun of Georgetown's female students. All right, here's what he's singing. You probably couldn't understand it. Georgetown girl, you know she's living in her M Street world. She never tires of her high-class toys. Yes, the reactions to these harsh and extremely demeaning words came swiftly. I can't look my 15-year-old daughter in the eye and tell her I endorse this person. Oh, I'm sorry. That was Jason Chaffetz, and he was talking about Trump, who, by the way, he later came around to voting for. The election for Georgia's sixth to be held April 18th isn't exactly a primary. It's just one big vote. And if no one gets to 50%, and it doesn't seem likely that anyone will get to 50%, there's going to be a runoff. That'll happen in June. Right now, Ossoff is leading, but that's probably because all the Republican candidates are splitting the vote. The district is deeply Republican, though it only went to Trump by one point. Still, Ossoff's stance on firearms preferring a good blaster by his side, plays well. It is not known if Ossoff will take out any negative ads of his own. He is said to prefer a fair fight to all this sneaking around. And polls show that voters in the 6th Congressional District list their top issues as jobs, terrorism, and ending the conflict in the great pit of Carcoon. Also, they hate acapella and love hats. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who once engaged in Battlestar Galactica cosplay in college, and it kept her out of the state Senate. Chris Berube, also a gist producer, used to dress up as C-3PO around the office. Oh, I'm being told that was just a misstep with bronzer. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was denied highest level clearances when it was revealed he was actually just two Ewoks wearing a trench coat. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He settled on the title chief content officer after he found out Grand Moff was taken. The gist, the Star Wars quote, most often uttered about my college dorm room, I thought this thing smelled bad on the outside. Unperu de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.